We're coming near the end of this letter that Paul sent to Timothy <clears throat> concerning proper conduct in the church and Timothy's care for this group of Christians there at Ephesus. <clears throat> the last time that I spoke, we looked at some of the perils of money and also just the subject of Christian contentment, how important that is. Uh, you might remember that uh, the last thing we looked at, or one of the last things, had to do with the love of money being the root of all sorts of evil. And we want to take up from there this morning with verse 11 of chapter 6. So let's, uh, let's just read. We'll read down through part of verse 15. But flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called. And you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all, and of Jesus Christ, who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the, the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will bring about at the proper time, he being God, God the Father. So he says here in verse 11, but flee these things. So obviously he's referring back to what he's taught before. Some would say it might go back to uh, virtually the whole letter, but I think it's especially true of what he began to say in, in verse 3 uh, of chapter 6. He's talking about fleeing things like uh, false doctrine, different doctrine, uh, fleeing pride and wrangling about words, disputes, envy, strife, revilings, uh, covetousness, uh, wanting to get rich. He says, flee those things. Get away from those things. Steer clear of those things. Uh, one of the commentators, or a number of the commentators that I looked at, were trying to, were trying to emphasize how strong this little phrase is here. Uh, they said it's like, it's like saying, avoid like the plague. Uh, escape for your life, get away from those things. Uh, but he goes on then, Paul goes on and says there's some positive things that we should pursue, things that we should aim at, things that we should follow after, I believe is what it says in the King James, follow after. Uh, and what's he list? Well, here's, here's the list of things that we should pursue. Righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. So we see that there's some things that we as Christians should run away from, and there's some things that we should run after. And this is true um, for each one of us. Even though it was addressed here to Timothy, flee these things, you man of God, and pursue 
righteousness. So it was, it was addressed to Timothy as a man of God. Um, and that's a significant de- designation. It was found in the Old Testament uh, referring to such men as Moses and David and Elijah. So it's a, it's a term of distinction, you would say, uh, denoting a high office entrusted to a servant of God, one whom God has set apart to himself uh, for a special work. But here's what I want us to get out of this, and that is that in the New Testament, every believer is a man or a woman of God. And we're set apart for some special service, some ministry. We all have that. So we shouldn't just say, well, that was directed to Timothy, so I don't, uh, doesn't really uh, pertain to me. It certainly does. In fact, in 2 Timothy, Paul uses the phrase man of God in a much more inclusive way when he says this, All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness that the man of God may be adequate, equipped equipped for every good work. So he's using it there in a much more inclusive way. We, as men and women of God, are to flee things like pride and envy and strife and error and evil suspicions and the love of money, but we are also to pursue the things that Paul lists here. And what I'd like to do is just take a little time on each one of these things that he's mentioned in verse 11, things that we're to pursue, just to kind of cause us to think about, you know, if we're supposed to pursue these things, we need to think about what we're aiming at here, what, what, he's, what he's talking about. So he starts out with righteousness. This, of course, has to do with being morally upright, righteousness, right conduct. We're to pursue righteousness. Jesus told us this on the Sermon on the Mount. He, he said, hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. So that's the idea of pursuing, earnestly pursuing um, righteousness. Now, we do this from a position of our imputed righteousness in Christ. That's not, he's not talking about our imputed righteousness here, but that's the position we do it from as Christians. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We have his imputed righteousness given to us as a free gift. But what Paul's speaking of here is a righteousness that's imparted and implemented in our lives by the Holy Spirit. That's what he's talking about, pursuing <laughs> righteousness. And imparted in a righteousness that's worked into our lives by the Holy Spirit. A lifestyle characterized by righteous living. A walk which is increasingly in harmony with God's law and his character. And that leads to the next thing that he brings out here. After righteousness, he mentions godliness. Now this is something, if you remember lesson or two ago, we said that Paul actually uses this word godliness often in this letter to, uh, to uh, Timothy. Uh, we won't go back through that, but it's, uh, it's a concept that was very important to Paul, godliness. It involves reverence toward God expressed in a godly lifestyle. And that lifestyle, of course, would be patterned after the Lord Jesus Christ. He's our example, living, walking, clear example of what godliness is all about. It has to do with our hearts being set on pleasing God through holy conduct and an awareness in our lives 
that we live in the presence of God and we live for his glory. It's piety in the activities of everyday life, godliness. The next thing he mentions is faith. Now, these are things we're to be pursuing. Faith, reliance upon God, trust in his promises. We're told without faith it is impossible to please God. And really, I think our little faith is one of our big problems. So we're to pursue faith. It's trusting God's revealed word and his providential way that he works in our lives. That's faith. What's God done today in your life? It may not have been the thing that you were expecting, but we trust in God, his providential ways, and his promises. It's not a leap in the dark, as some people would say. Faith is not a leap in the dark. It is trust in the one who's revealed himself in the person of Christ and in the revelation recorded in the Bible. Faith is trust in what God has revealed to us in Christ, in the person of Christ, and in his word. So I say again, faith is not a leap in the dark. Faith is a leap into the light. After all, we're coming to Jesus who said, I am the light of the world. He said, he said this, He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. How can it be a leap into the darkness when Jesus said, If you follow me, you'll not walk in darkness, but you'll have the light of life. Besides that, if we're trusting in his word, we're told that his word is a lamp, is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. So I'm just trying to emphasize the points that this is in no way a leap into the dark. It's a leap into the light. The next thing he brings up is love. And, of course, love is a great crowning attribute of virtue of the Christian life. It's a complete antithesis of those things that a Christian is supposed to flee back in verse 4. Things like envy and strife and abusive language, evil suspicions. If you love, those things will not be there. So we're to pursue love. Um, and then he goes on, perseverance. What's perseverance? Well, it has to do with steadfast endurance. The grace to bear up under trials, especially over the long haul. One person said it's pressing on in the press. Pressing on in the press. Unswerving constancy despite adversity. Unswerving constancy despite adversity. It is the grace to accept and endure weariness, pain, and other difficulties patiently. So, perseverance. And then the last thing he mentions here is gentleness. The composure of spirit that knows how to take things calmly, yet also stand for righteousness and truth. It's a meekness that is not weakness. It, gentleness is, is an uh, inner attitude which can walk in humility, yet recognize its high calling in God, the high calling of God upon your life, the wonder of being a Christian, but yet walking in humility, gentleness. I think these last three qualities, love, perseverance, perseverance, and gentleness, may particularly have reference to the Christian's behavior towards opposition, those that oppose the gospel. 
We need to press on in love, being patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. So uh, love and perseverance and gentleness, especially related to difficult situations related to the opposition to the gospel. And just as a little aside, I, I want to point out that uh, this list of a- attributes that we're to flee from and these others that we're to pursue is, is a pretty good place to turn to if we want to understand what Jesus meant when he said, by their fruits you shall know them. By their fruits you shall know them. Manifestations of bad fruit are there in verses 4 and f- uh, 5. All those things like envy and strife and disputes and uh, that type of thing. It's bad fruit. If you see that type of thing uh, from a ministry, uh, you're looking at something that is showing forth bad fruit. Uh, On the other hand, good fruit would be things like we've just looked at here in verse 11. So... um, just just to realize this is a good place to consider what Jesus is talking about, knowing them by their fruits. We can say from verse 11 that it's not enough just to flee evil. We must also pursue good. Christians should not be known just by what they avoid. Unfortunately, that seems to be often the case. Christians don't do this, they don't like this, they're against this. But we should be known as much, or maybe even more so, by those things that we pursue. Righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, gentleness. Well, let's go on then to verse 12. We see that these characteristics are all part of fighting the good fight of faith. Fighting the good fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called. And you made a good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Matthew Henry says, Those who will get to heaven must fight their way there. Those who would get to heaven must fight their way there. Now he's just talked about being gentle. And yet, that's, it's not a contradiction. Paul told Timothy earlier on in this letter something very similar. He said this in chapter 1, verse 18 and 19. This command I entrust you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may fight the good fight, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwrecked as regard to their faith. But fight the good fight, he said. Telling, telling him that at the very beginning of the letter. And here as he's closing the letter, he's saying the same thing. Keep fighting, keep striving, keep putting forth real effort in the Christian life. Fight the good fight. Now actually the word here, I'm told from the commentaries in the Greek, is the word from which we get our word agonize. So that shows what type of fight we're talking about. This is not uh, just a little play arm wrestling or something. This is agonize. 
his strong admonition to keep pressing on in the faith despite opposition. And we do have opposition. We are in a real battle, a fierce warfare with the devil and the world and our own flesh. They are all opposed to Christ, the work of Christ, and they're determined foes that we have to confront daily. Sometimes that confrontation brings about some defeat and discouragement in our lives, but we get up, we press on. That's the whole point of perseverance, isn't it? The, um, the importance of just realizing that uh, this is a battle, and it's going to be a battle until we get to heaven. And we need to realize that this is a good fight. He says, fight the good fight of faith. Um, we're in a just and righteous warfare. Fight the good fight. He doesn't say fight a good fight. He says fight the good fight. It's a good fight because it's against evil and it is for the greatest of all causes, the establishment of the kingdom of God. It's good because we fight under the best of leaders. Through the centuries, many fights and battles and military confrontations have taken place in the world, but there's only one preeminently good fight. The good fight of faith is a spiritual battle Christians are in to advance the gospel and to bring about, to establish God's kingdom here on earth. Most wars bring devastation to the people involved on both sides. That's because the souls of soldiers are often demoralized and their consciences are hardened because of the type of battle that they're in. But this fight is good for the souls of its soldiers. It promotes humility and love and lessens selfishness and pride. So it's a good fight. The Christian's cause is just and the power of God is, is with him and on his side. Christ has purpose to build his church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. It's a good fight because righteousness and truth will win the victory. It's a good fight because it brings everlasting peace and a crown of righteousness to those who have fought the good fight. But we must remember that, as he says here, fight the good fight of faith. It's not flesh that we fight with. It's a good fight of faith. The flesh profits nothing. Flesh only gets in the way of victory. In fact, it's one of the main things we have to battle against is our own flesh. We go in faith, our own great weakness feeling. So we want to be like Paul, who could say at the end of his life, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course, I've kept the faith. And this can only come about by trusting in Christ moment by moment. Triumph comes by trust. Fight the good fight of faith. 
Faith is a victory that overcomes the world. So we have to continually flee certain things. We have to continually pursue certain things. And we are in a continual fight. But it's a good fight of faith. We do that as we press on, looking to the author and finisher of our faith. A number of uh, places when I looked up on the Internet, uh, different messages on this subject, I saw this a number of times. I think they were going from the King James. They put the three F's. Flee, follow, fight. Christian life. Flee, follow, fight. Well, next thing that Paul says is that we should take hold of eternal life. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called. Take hold of eternal life. I found that phrase somewhat difficult to understand. Maybe it's not one that's hard for you, but it was for me. What, what's he saying here? Take hold of eternal life. It almost sounds like we do not have eternal life right now, but we need to take hold of it. We know that's not the case because of what the scriptures teach us. As Christians, we have eternal life right now. Jesus said this in John six forty seven. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. Or John says it this way. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know that you have eternal life. So eternal life is a present possession of the believer. So what's it mean to take hold of eternal life? Well, I think it means that we need to possess our possessions. We need to take hold of what is ours in Christ. More and more we need to do that. There's a, lot, there's a lot more to eternal life in Christ than what we commonly realize and experience. We need to take hold of eternal life. As we, good, as we fight the good fight of faith, we more and more take hold of the reality of what eternal life is all about. That's how you take hold of eternal life, to fight the good fight of faith. We are to daily grasp on to the supernatural, eternal life that God has called us to. Now, there's a, there's a future aspect to eternal life. We certainly realize that in the age to come when we'll experience the fullness of what eternal life is all about, this eternal life that we've been called to. But here, what I think Paul is saying, his main emphasis is on the present, right now, take hold of eternal life to which we are called. So, I don't know, maybe you understood it better before I tried to explain it, but it helped me to try to uh, analyze what, what he's saying. I, in essence, Paul, I think, was saying to Timothy, God has called you to himself. You have eternal life. You've made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Now follow through on this great commission he's given you Lay hold on all that God has called you to. Press on. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold of eternal life. The next little phrase here, he just kind of piles thoughts on top of one another here. After he says, take hold of eternal life to which you were called, 
and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. So, he talks about this good confession Timothy has made. I think this is probably a reference to the time when he was baptized. Uh, When he met Paul, Paul began teaching him and taking him uh, on missionary journeys somewhere along the line there. He was baptized, possibly before that, but I think probably he's talking about the time when he... He was baptized. This, this is when Timothy made his public confession of faith in Christ, one of the first times, surely. That's what baptism is supposed to be, our public uh, confession after conversion of our, our trust in Christ. Now, I have to say that some commentators think this could be referring to his ordination, Timothy's ordination in the early church as the leader of the early church. So the many witnesses of Timothy's good confession would either be those witnesses at his baptism or at his ordination. You kind of get a little feel for that possibility in chapter 4, verse 14, where Paul says, Do not neglect the spiritual gifts within you which were bestowed upon you through prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands of the presbytery. So there were many witnesses there at that time of his being uh, installed as a leader in the church and given spiritual gifts. So I, don't, I, I, I tend to think it was his baptism. It could have been his ordination. Uh, but the point is that God has called Timothy to eternal life in Christ. He has confessed Christ before any, many witnesses, and now he must continue to fight the good fight of faith. So in light of that, I think it's good for us to remember that we do not have our faith to ourselves. People know about our commitment to Christ, or at least they should, and people are watching. There are many witnesses, both Christian and non-Christian. And just realize that, but in a much more important way, we need to remember that we're living under the eye of God and Christ. That's what he goes on to say here in 13 and 14. I charge you in the presence of God, not just the many witnesses that were there at, at your baptism or your ordination, but I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of the Lord Jesus. So, Paul is giving Timothy a very solemn and authoritative charge. He's saying, I'm doing this before God and Christ. Now, Paul does this a number of times with Timothy. Uh, Back in chapter 5, verse 21, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of his chosen angels to remain to." Maintain these principles without bias. So, solemn charge there before God and Christ. And then, actually, in 2 Timothy, does a very similar thing, chapter 4. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. So, a solemn charge here 
to Timothy, strong words, but I don't think they were meant to frighten, you know, frighten Timothy into to action or obedience, but rather to encourage him um, that God had called him and God's put his hand upon him and he just needs to be true to his great calling. God will, if he, if he will do that, God will strengthen him and he'll be able to follow in the steps of Christ. So, in 6.13, verse 13, Paul reminds Timothy that God is the source and sustainer of all life. That would be encouragement. He's the one that's given you life. He'll continue to give you life. Uh, As long as he wants you working for him, serving him, he's going to keep you uh, alive and give you strength. And then, so he, he he reminds Timothy that uh, God is the source and sustainer of all life, and that Christ himself testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate. This could mean, now why why did he bring that up? Well, uh, I think it's, again, to strengthen Timothy. Um, This could mean, as far as this good confession before Pontius Pilate, could mean in the presence of Pilate, when Christ testified before him, or the word, I'm told from the commentators, that this word before can also be translated in the, in the time of Pontius Pilate. So it either means when he stood right there before him, in front of him, or the, the entire time of his testimony there of suffering and death. Christ made his good confession in the most trying of circumstances. I think this is part of what would come to Timothy's mind when when Paul mentions this good confession before Pontius Pilate. He made his good confession in the most trying of times. His followers had deserted him, and his enemies were demonically empowered. I mean, it was the, the power. Well, this is what Jesus said. He said concerning those opposing him, this hour and the power of darkness is yours, speaking of his enemies. So not only had his friends turned against him, his followers turned against him, but the whole power of hell was coming against him in that time. This hour and the power of darkness is yours. So when Paul says that Jesus testified the good confession before or in the time of Pontius Pilate, I think he was reminding Timothy of the extreme circumstances in which Christ was a faithful witness. And he was doing this to bolster Timothy's courage for the calling that he has, carrying out his calling, which would be in difficult times. Timothy should remember that he was made, that he, Timothy, has made a similar confession of faith before many witnesses as Jesus made before Pontius Pilate. Jesus testified that he was king. And that's Timothy's confession too. Jesus is Lord. Um, let's let's. Well, let me just read this to you. When Christ was before Pilate, this is what he said. One of the things he said. This is in chapter eighteen of John, verse thirty-seven. He says, "Pilate therefore said to him, So you are a king.'" Jesus answered, "You say correctly that I am uh, that I am a king." For this I have been born, 
and for this I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. So he's saying, yeah, I'm a king. In fact, that's what it's all about. You know, Jesus' primary message was himself. It wasn't just truths about different things or the way to live. His primary message was about himself, who he is. And he's saying to Pilate here, I'm a king. And I came into the world for this purpose. I like the way it says here at the end of this, everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Well, obviously Pilate didn't. Pilate turns around and says, what is truth? But it, everyone who is of the truth hears his voice. They're going to they're recognize this man is the king. This man is the Lord. This one is the one I should bow to. Well, Jesus had testified that he was a king. Timothy had confessed that Jesus is Lord. When Christians confess their faith before friends and foe, they do what their master has already done. When they willingly suffer for their faith, they undergo what their master has already undergone. And this is some of what's being acknowledged at the beginning of the Christian life when a Christian is baptized. What's he saying? I'm following the Lord. That's what you're saying. I'm following Christ. The basic confession at baptism was and is Jesus is Lord. That's what you're saying. I'm going to be a follower of this one who's the Lord. No matter what happens, Jesus is Lord. So, Paul is charging Timothy before God and in the presence of God and of Christ who made the good confession. And what is the solemn charge here to Timothy? Well, back in 1 Timothy, it's to keep the commandment without stain or reproach unto the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. To keep the commandment. What is that commandment? What's he referring to? I think most likely it's what Timothy had been entrusted with. That is the proclamation of the gospel and the care of the New Testament church. He should carry out his commission in a manner worthy of his calling. Keep the commandment without stain or reproach. Now, I think it's possible also that you, we can take this in a larger sense. This commandment to Timothy that he was supposed to keep was simply the law of Christ, to love as Christ loved. For Timothy, that meant serving the church as a leader. And we all have an area of service, many different types of ministries, but the essence of that service is to love Christ as he loved, to love as Christ loved. So 
Uh, what I'm trying to do is to say that this, even though this was a charge to Timothy, it can be applied to all of us here. Uh, there's a sense in which this commandment is something that we all are to seek to keep without stain or reproach until Christ comes or we come before Him. So we're coming here to this last part, that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which you will bring about at the proper time. We should desire to maintain our lives and our teaching unblemished from moral stain and doctrinal error until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. As you read through the New Testament, it seems that many of the people in the early church thought that Christ would come very soon, I mean, even in their own lifetime. Whether Paul believed this is hard to say, but he did believe that whenever this event took place, it would be the proper time. See how he puts it here? The appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he, that is God the Father, will bring about at the proper time or some versions say, in his own time. Paul knew that God's time would be the right time, whatever time that would be, which is the attitude we all should take related to the second coming of Christ. It'll be the proper time. It'll be his time. It'll be the right time, even though we don't know for sure what time that will be, when that will be. We should seek to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Whenever that appearing might be, we seek to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age. Well, when Paul thinks of what God is doing in Christ and what he's going to bring about through Christ's second coming, he gives a magnificent doxology here, beginning in the middle of verse 15 and going on into verse 16. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Well, we won't go into that this time. Lord willing, try to look into that that uh, doxology, doxology, that praise of God next time I speak. So, um, flee, follow, fight. Uh, the commission that Paul has for Timothy here is for all of us. Certain things we have to flee. Certain things we have to follow after. And in all of that, we have to fight the good fight of faith. <laughs>